Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! The Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. As Rob Gilbert takes an end-of-year breather, you're with Willem van Denderen and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. We hope you had a very Merry Christmas and we're able to spend some time in some way or another with those dearest to you. First edition news shortly, where we'll be joined, as always, by our former ITN journo turned pundit, and I'm sure a very happy gunner this morning, Derek Dyson. The World Cup has been and gone, and it seems remarkable that something of such magnitude is in the rearview mirror, but football never sleeps, and as always, the Premier League's Boxing Day fixtures have returned and, driven, and delivered plenty of drama. To wrap it all, we'll welcome in our great mate from The Athletic, Rob Tanner, who was at the King Power Stadium and witnessed a result from the Magpies that might make more than a few sit up and take notice around the world. From there, we're going to flip our normal order of proceedings and welcome stoppage time back into the main show. This is, of course, where that segment grew from its nascent stages into the big beast that demanded its own spin-off. We've got a very special interview for you later in the week. So today, we will tick through our usual look at the week's teams, games, and hot topics. We'll wrap it with Michael's final thoughts on the Qatar World Cup and FIFA's investigation into Salt Bay, among other things, would you believe? Michael, you've co-hosted this show from, I'm going to estimate, upwards of 20 countries around the world. And today, I think we add another to the list. Where do we find you? Hello, Willem. Hello, uh, Derek and uh, all the listeners to Box the Box. It's great to be back on the show, uh, albeit without a great... Uh, fearless leader Rob Gilbert. I'm in Istanbul in Turkey, Willem, and uh, I'm pleased to join you from here. I have taken um, about 10 days off uh, over the last uh, little while to spend some time with my two daughters, and uh, we've been to Jordan uh, and uh, seen the sights of Amman and Petra, and now we're in, uh, we enjoyed our Christmas in Istanbul in Turkey, um, and um, I've even ma- managed to get in a little bit of football, which I'll talk about in my Game of the Week later on in the show. And Derek Dyson, by my count, this must be third Christmas for Little Maven. That is firmly Santa time, is it not? How has the uh, how's Christmas been in the Dyson household? Oh, it's been fabulous. She she understands the concept of Santa and Christmas now, so very different to the last couple of years. But also the other people in red that she liked was Arsenal, and she was sat on the couch next to me this morning shouting, come on, you gunners, as we came from behind to win that game so a really good Christmas break so far Willem. So it was second half goals to Saka, Martinelli and Nketiah who overhauled Said Benrahma's first half opener Arsenal 3-1 in the end and that puts them eight points clear of Man City who play their game in hand at Leeds on Thursday. Elsewhere Wolves climbed off the bottom with a late winner at Everton and Newcastle moved into second perhaps just momentarily uh, but no less significantly with a 3-0 win over Leicester. So for uh, Derek for those who might have slept off a couple of days of merriment and didn't get up for the early 7am uh, kickoff on the east coast of Australia. How were you feeling at halftime and how did the Gunners uh, make you feel at full time? I was feeling all right at halftime. Well, obviously, Arsenal went in 1-0 down. They did have a VAR penalty uh, overturned right on the stroke of halftime, which probably soured things a little. But West Ham were just packing the centre of the pitch quite cynically, I suppose, or... Um, you know, good tactics could be another way of looking at it. Arsenal were struggling to break through the two main banks of players there. But um, I always felt that the goal was going to come. Arsenal, well, there was a lot more intent in the second half. 
and once they uh, once they got that 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 first goal in there, then then you know West Ham's resistance kind of melted away, and you only felt it was one winner at that point. And by the time Enketia had done a a great turn and, and finish across uh, Lucas Fabianski, the game was done and dusted, and the narrative was all set for Arsenal without Jesus at Christmas. Um, you know, West Ham at home is probably the best gift we could have been given as a Christmas present uh, in terms of getting our league season back on track. Uh, but there's, there'll be plenty more tougher fixtures to come, but uh, great to see you, Willem. And we'll jump into the rest of the Boxing Day fixtures with Rob Tanner shortly. But before we do that, Mike, we need to deal with the uh, the ugly ructions that continue to rumble on domestically. Football Australia this week imposed temporary sanctions on Melbourne Victory until January 15 as it completes its show cause process. Only Victory members can attend home matches. While none can attend away fixtures, there was dispensation granted to 1,000 fans for their away clash on Boxing Day. Victoria Police laid 29 arrests in the first week following the December 17 pitch invasion from 36 invaders identified. And I'll just read you the response from the victory. They said they'll comply with the sanctions handed down and are working with all relevant stakeholders to ensure its games moving forward will be in safe environment for players, fans and everyone involved. So, Michael, you've been perhaps distant uh, geographically from this issue, but from a broader picture, it is really just a horrendous shame to have seen what the Socceroos did on the pitch and you know, gave the gave the A-League a bit of a handball to kick on with from there. And then to be on Christmas Eve, uh, rather Boxing Day, Swan Street, this is a fixture with Western United that they're trying to build uh, into a marquee event and to have 2,800 there, victory fans locked out, bulk of them not watching because they've canned their Paramount subscriptions over the past fortnight, really is uh, a damn shame for the league at the moment. Yeah, it's a leadership crisis, isn't it, Willem? You know, I... Um... Uh, yeah, went through a range of emotions watching all this unfold from outside of Australia uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, and I guess we get to this stage of the process and uh, I'm uh, a little perplexed and a bit disappointed in the APL leadership. Uh, we haven't seen enough from them. I think this uh, potentially could have been avoided. In all of the uh, rec- recriminations and um, dialogue and sort of uh, punditry around the whole A-League issue at the moment uh, as a result of the pitch invasion uh, at the Derby, the Melbourne Derby. I think the one group of people that have got away scot-free are the APL leadership in terms of um, the mismanagement of the announcement of the grand selling the grand finals through to even, you know, leadership within A-League clubs uh, not preparing appropriately for the Melbourne Derby and any potential problems. Not that I... um, um, absolving the fans in any way. I think uh, potentially it could have been avoidable with better management. And that's what's probably sticking in my craw, Willem, is that um, I think there needs to be some real uh, focus on APL leadership, um, Paul Letterer, Danny Townsend, and leadership at clubs too, um, Di Petro, Caroline Carnegie at Melbourne Victory, whether they're actually up to the task of uh, running and operating this league because the good people in the sport, uh, we're hurting. We're really, really hurting, and we rely on these people to do their jobs. And uh, you know, I'm just frustrated that uh, this could have been avoided had it have been bet- better management been in place from the word go. That's that's the thoughts I have at the moment. 
Uh, the words of Stephen Lowy ringing in your ears. Be careful what you wish for, Michael. Uh, your, is your confidence that the APL can recover from this and take the game forward properly over the next 5, 10, 15 years? This is a, a long-term organisation in place, or at least theoretically. Is your, is your confidence that far eroded that you think it is going to be Football Australia, perhaps with the league in their hands once again? It has been them who have come in over the top over the last week, making the big statements on a sort of political and governmental level. Oh, look, I don't know about confidence, um, but they have to. You know, they have to. They have to step up. You know, these people are not uh, they are not uh, inadequate in their uh, capacity. They've got great capacity, so they just need to step up. It's time uh, for them to step up. Most certainly is. We'll head back overseas. England have farewelled another member of their 1966 World Cup squad. Right back George Cohen passing on December 23, aged 83. Cohen's 37 caps included every minute of their famous 1966 campaign, and he may well have won more were it not, were it not for a knee injury that forced his retirement at 29. Derek, he spent his entire club career at Fulham and still holds the distinction of being their only World Cup winner, 459 appearances between 56 and 69. He fought bowel cancer and beat it across his life and was prominent in early calls uh, for research into dementia in football. Yeah, very sad. Willem uh, leaves only uh, Sir Jeff Hurst and Sir Bobby Charlton left of the 1966 team. Uh, we've probably lost a few of them over the past uh, few years. And George Cohen was really, really was a great statesman of the game, a true one club man, as you said, with Fulham. And unfortunately, and we've covered it on the show before. You know, these these gave these guys gave everything to to English football, but unfortunately. English football didn't give a lot to them. Like they, they were not rich men. Uh, these guys, even you know, as England's eleven only World Cup winners, he had to sell the medal in nineteen ninety eight just to raise some funds to um, keep his life going. Um, so it's a sort of sad end, really. But uh, a terrific player, highly regarded uh, across football, and he will certainly be missed. Well said, Derek, and look forward to asking Rob Tanner about the reaction from on the ground there in England as well. A little bit of transfer news before we jump into Socceroos and Matilda Central. PSV Eindhoven have sold Cody Gakpo to Liverpool for a club record £37 million. Gakpo has been linked to Manchester United, but again, as with Darwin Nunez in the uh, the Northern Hemisphere summer, has been won over by Jurgen Klopp and co. So, Derek... 23 through the much lauded Dutch system has just shown with the national team at the World Cup on the very big, uh, the biggest of stages that he can perform when the pressure's on. So this looks like a, a thoroughly decent signing at a time when they need a freshen up. Well, box to box, Willem, is the place to be to hear all of your speculative uh, transfer news. And we did call Cody Gakpo, I think, was our inaugural transfer alert in stoppage time of, uh, a week into the tournament where he scored three goals. He, uh, he was already on my radar. It was very impressive for PSV against Arsenal in the Europa League earlier this season in Arsenal's sole defeat in, in that campaign and ran us, ran, us, ran us ragged. And this is a guy that's been destined for stardom for some time. He's played at the Netherlands at every single level from 18s upwards. He's already scored six out of 14 and uh, in for the national team. And you just feel like with Liverpool, they let Sadio Mane go. Um, they've obviously brought in Darwin Nunez, as you mentioned, but this is a very different kind of player. He will give them different kinds of attacking options. He's no, he's notionally a winger, but I think he could play a number of different positions across a, a front, th- a front three, or, a, or as a uh, as a wide man. So 
Jürgen Klopp getting the business done nice and early, and I'm sure our friend Rob Gilbert will be very pleased to see Gakpo in the future. Final intricacies being tied up there, but he will be a Liverpool player from January 1. Let's jump on to Socceroos and Matilda's Central for the Green and Gold Army. Edge, Graham Arnold looks increasingly likely to negotiate a new Socceroos deal come January, and he can take the fact that he was ranked the best manager at the World Cup to the table. L'Equipe, French uh, football media institution, had Arnie at the top of the pops for his four games, 6.75 out of 10 he averaged, better than Japan's Hajime Moriyasu, 6.5, Lionel Scaloni and Walid Regregi, uh, 6.43. Uh, perhaps more practically, the, the ruse have shot up to 27th. That's our best ranking since the Holger Osiak days over a decade ago. But did your, uh, did your eyes light up? Did you have a little wry grin? What did you make of the Arnie news? Best of the best. Uh, I think Arnie will be making the most of uh, all of the love that's coming his way. Uh, I think he's entitled to his new Willem after uh, steering the Socceroos to our best ever World Cup performance. So, yeah, I think he's uh, him and uh, his management are in the driver's seat. Uh, there'll be... Um, uh, they'll be trying to get uh, the best deal for Graham uh, as possible, as you would expect. So, yeah, that was a great uh, piece for Graham in the Lequip. Probably more of a reflection on um, Lequip's view of our playing roster rather than Graham's coaching, maybe. But um, look, it, it's uh, it's good to be the headlines for all the right reasons. So, well done Lequip, and well done to Arnie. Could be one of those cultural cringe situations in Australian football where we see something like that and laugh it off and scoff oh, it couldn't possibly be us but if you look into it Lequip obviously we hear about them right up there with sort of Lamazia and Kicker as the top European football publications and these rankings apparently hold quite a bit of weight they're notoriously tough so well done to Arnie to uh to sit top of the tree there, as I've said uh the Women's Champions League those group stages have wrapped up and Arsenal I've made a huge statement to finish. 9-1, Derek, uh, for the uh, Gunners women against Zurich and a double to Caitlin Ford. So, as always, strong Aussie current running through the uh, uh, through Arsenal success there from the women's front. Sam Kerr for Chelsea opened the scoring in their 3-0 win over PSG. So, both clubs through to the last eight as well. Uh, draw to be held on February 10. And the English Women's Super League are on hiatus now until January 14. So, Edge, all positive on, uh, on that front. 9-1. Yeah, that's a big result. But uh, PSG going down is also a big result. So England Women's Super League clubs continue their rise. Um, it's a good competition, the Women's uh, Champions League. We should keep a close eye on that. There'll be some frontline Australians having big roles in that uh, throughout uh, January to April when uh, it concludes. So the gents, Riley McGree, came on in the 62nd minute for Middlesbrough in their 4-1 win over Wigan. Tom Rogic set up West Brom second in their 2-0 win over Bristol City. And in Scotland, Aaron Moy started Celtic's Christmas Eve clash with St Johnston. Went on to be a pretty emphatic 4-1 win that has them nine points clear of Rangers with a goal difference, nine points to the good as well. So all positive there for our Socceroos and Matildas abroad. Stick around on the other side of this. We're going to welcome in Rob Tanner from The Athletic to wrap up all of the Premier League's Boxing Day. Fixtures. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to Summer's the time for great outdoor cooking, Michael. What's on the barbecue in Turkey? Oh, there's a, a Adana kebab is on the barbecue in Turkey, and I'm sure the Adana kebab would taste a lot better in downtown Melbourne, Australia, with some Hoyt's herbs and spices added to the spicy mix of the kebab, the, the mixed and, lamb and beef. And Derek, Christmas time, your uh, Hoyt's herbs and spices, uh, little sachets and shakers would be just as empty as your chemist warehouse supplies. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just actually come off the barbecue. I went straight to record box to box and uh, was getting some 
Boyk's herbs and spices into those steaks, and they they were cooked to perfection, Willem. It has been a huge week of eating, and now we can look forward to a big 2023 on the feed as well. Seasoned steaks with Hoyt's oregano, salt, and whole black pepper. We'll rub some Hoyt's lemon pepper onto fish or prawns, and spice up a salad with Hoyt's jardiniera, pickled vegetables. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Well, December without Premier League football felt more than a little odd, but things are back as they should be following the commencement of the traditional Boxing Day fixtures. And to wrap them all, we welcome back to the show, who else but our good mate Rob Tanner from The Athletic. Rob, Merry Christmas and welcome back to Box to Box. Merry Christmas to you guys as well. Plenty of action on the pitch to get to, but just beforehand, the sad news uh, this week with the passing of George Cohen, aged 83 just before Christmas, uh, a proper Fulham legend, still the only man to win the World Cup while playing for that club. Uh, His England career cut short, but it certainly was very sweet. Uh, And from what I've been reading this week, he's been remembered as a a thoroughly decent and resilient man. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And there were some lovely tributes paid to him um, around all the grounds in the country. Um, There's not many of the World Cup winners left now, sadly. And, uh, you know, they were um, still remain the only team that have ever lifted a a trophy for the nation. So um, they're very much in the the people's hearts. And I, I think that was expressed very much so yesterday. No, well said, Vale, uh, to George. Um, Rob, Boxing Day, you said you were on the turkey. You roused yourself from your Christmas feed, and I assume you headed down to the King Power Stadium. Uh, Leicester 3, Newcastle United. Uh, sorry, Leicester nil, Newcastle United 3. Uh, was this more a tale of the Foxes or the Magpies? Well, I'd like to say the Magpies, to be honest, because um, I was very impressed with them. Um, you know, they've been one of the surprise packages this season, although we shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, a year ago, they entered the uh, January transfer window, made five signings, spent about £90 million, but they've spent it shrewdly. And um, what I saw yesterday was a, a side in full flow. Um, Eddie Howe's really got them playing. They're, one of the most impressive things about them is their pressing. Um, Leicester like to build from the back. They like to, like to build and play through teams. Um, but if they were able to break the initial press, they couldn't beat the second press. And they were, often they were being dispossessed. And then counter-attacked and um, I think that was the story of the game. I mean, Leicester have got a terrible record on Boxing Day in the Premier League. I mean, that's the 17th time they've played on Boxing Day and they've only ever won two. Um, and yesterday was probably one of the worst defeats they've had on, on Boxing Day. I mean, 2-0 down after seven minutes, apparently conceded within 90 seconds. It, they were so slow out of the traps. It was almost as if the last six weeks, you know, they just switched off completely and they couldn't restart. Uh, whereas Newcastle were the complete opposite and 2 0 up then they controlled the game in the second half. Um, it was a bit of a non event, really. Uh, I mean, because Newcastle had the game under so much control and Leicester just didn't have the people, the players on the bench that could come on and affect the game with James Madison in the stand still with a knee injury. So, uh, uh, yeah, the transfer window can't come quick enough for Leicester. They don't normally do business in January. In fact, I don't think Brendan's ever signed a player. Uh, permanently in the January transfer window as Leicester manager, but he's going to have to now. Well, Leicester, uh, the, the sort of the victims of of the break. Uh, you said they didn't quite get back up and running, but obviously they had some some kind of poor form that had been turned around leading into the World Cup. And probably if Brendan Rodgers had had his way, he wouldn't have had a World Cup, and he just would have kept it going. Rob, yeah, exactly. The break came at the worst possible time for them. I mean. Newcastle could have said the same. It's, it's a bit of the unknown about 
what how that will affect you. But we saw with their shocking start to the season uh, after the, their preseason that you know it took Leicester seven games to start getting going again. Uh, there was a lot of problems in that transfer window. They only made one sign in the loss of Fana. Um, yeah, there was a lot of speculation around other players and, and disruption. And they were just starting to get some momentum. Then they've had to all shut down for six weeks. Now they come back and the fear is that we're going to see another slow start because it's not going to get much easier, is it? I mean, after, after Newcastle, they've got to go to Anfield. So, um, you know, it could, be, um, it could be a tough old start to the restart for them. Yeah, and uh, going over to Newcastle, I mean, I'll just ask a straight question, Rob. Are, are they title contenders? Yes, they have to be considered as title contenders. I mean, that's six on the bounce they've won. I know there's a six-week break in between, but you know, from what I saw yesterday, they are a cohesive team. Um, they're strong and experienced at the back. Um, the midfield work incredibly hard. Bruno Gamarius, what a player they've got there. He's, he's fantastic. I mean, they probably just need a little bit more cutting edge in the final third, although Almiron's been in fantastic form. Uh, he scored a wonderful goal yesterday. There were some great goals yesterday. And, um, yeah, so I think that they have to be considered uh, as contenders, I mean, as much as Arsenal are. Yeah, the Gunners obviously running out 3-1 uh, winners over West Ham. And David Moyes will be, a, you know, his already very furrowed brow will be even more furrowed after after that defeat. I think four on the bounce for the Hammers. And then looking over at Everton as well, who uh, conceded deep in injury time to, to lose to Wolves. Um, are Moyes and Lampard two of the uh, two of the managers that would be probably most uh, worried about their jobs at the moment in the Premier League? Possibly. I think both of them have got um, a bit of reserve in the bank um, with their employers. I think, Obviously, what David Moyes has done at West Ham, and, and I'm really surprised to see them struggling so much. I mean, they obviously went to, to Arsenal, which was a really tough task, but um, they need to start picking up results fast and, 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 and looking at the, the games in which they can do that. Um, Everton, I'd be more concerned about, I'd be more worried about. I, I, I don't look at that Everton side and see um, the talent that's in that West Ham side. I mean, they're Declan Rice in there. Everton look bang in trouble to me, and um, I, I don't know whether Frank Lampard has got the experience or the resources around him to to, um, to to be able to drag them away. I mean, their, their only solace must be the, the, the hope that there's three worst teams. Because um, it looks like Nottingham Forest are going to obviously struggle. Um, Southampton seem to be on a slide as well. So uh, there's quite a few sides that, um, that could save Everton. But it seems to be year on year that they're in the same situation. Um, so there, there has to be a root and branch sort of assessment, reassessment of where they're going and what their philosophy is and what the plan is for that, for that club. They're too big a club to, to, to drop out of the, the Premier League. But um, you know, you, you, your name alone doesn't guarantee you that status. Yeah, and look, you mentioned Southampton before. They obviously went 3-1 down at home to uh, Brighton and Hove Albion. And these are two teams located on on the south coast. And obviously... Heading in two different directions in many ways. It was Southampton who were the, you know, what used to be so-called one of the best-run clubs in the Premier League, um, and 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 things are going going south. And Brighton, obviously, despite losing their manager and appointing De Zerbi, have sort of looked like they've kept their momentum going in the right direction. But um, I suppose, I suppose, Rob, it's a case of. 
uh, you know, two, 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 two teams with, you know, similar ambitions, but going in two different directions. Again, it goes back to what I say about having a philosophy and, um, and how well you run. Um, there needs to be a lot of investment at Southampton. I haven't seen a lot of investment in them. They've sold key players. They haven't replaced them. Um, and as we've seen with Leicester, with their lack of investment uh, in the summer, you know, you stand still and everybody else goes past, moves past you. And, you, and then that's when you start falling down the pack. So there needs to be investment in Southampton as well. Brighton have invested um, and they've done so superbly well. Um, the, the flip side of how they're, they're, they've done it is that um, you know, players like McAllister after the World Cup, you know, the January transfer window's coming around. People, other clubs are going to be sniffing around him. So, you know, they, they've got to be prepared to, to try and uh, keep those big players, those key players for them uh, heading forward if they're going to continue with that momentum. But it's constantly investment that is required in the Premier League if you're going to continue to, to progress and, and just keep pace with the rest. I mean, some of the some of the really top side, I mean, we've seen Newcastle, the investment that's gone in there and, and the, the impact it's had, um, it's so important. And one other team going in the right direction, Rob, appears to be Liverpool. They had, a, by their standards, a, a pretty ordinary, if not terrible, start to the season. But three wins on the bounce now and a 3-1 uh, win away at Aston Villa, looking pretty good there. Do, do, do we feel like Klopp has managed to put that sort of poor form behind them? And did can you only see them now climbing the table and getting into the first few places? Yeah, I can see them challenging now for Champions League status. Um, their, their squad has it's got so much strength in depth. I mean, I know they've had a, a lot of injuries. Uh, he's been blooding a lot of the youngsters, trying to get them ready, trying to accelerate their progress as well, to give him even more options. But um, after the game, we saw him being interviewed on the telly and he had a huge smile on his face. And we haven't seen that much this season. So he's had a lot of issues to deal with. Um, but... Um, He's too good a manager not to be able to resolve those problems and, and guide Liverpool through them. And then, and obviously, there's the fact of Anfield and the impact that the fans have as well. So Leicester, you will know, be going there next, and that that will be a really, really tough night for them. They haven't got the best record at, at Anfield anyway. But um, you know, the fact that now they're going there and Liverpool have got a bit of momentum behind them makes it even more difficult. And just going to uh, Arsenal, who I think a lot of people were looking at Arsenal. Could, could they come back and be in the same form that they were leading into the World Cup? There was a lot of talk around uh, Jesus and his unavailability now for the next uh, few few uh, few months now, probably. Uh, probably couldn't have had a, a better game to come back to than West Ham at home, with all due respect to... West Ham, that is exactly what the Gunners probably would have liked in front of former manager Arsene Wenger. Um, but yeah, they seem to have just sort of clicked straight back in, Rob. It, next game is away at Brighton. That will surely, though, be a tougher test than West Ham at home. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, I thought it took Arsenal 45 minutes to really get going. Um, I thought West Ham did very well in the first half. They got the penalty. Yeah, they were resolute, defended well. Um, Everybody had question marks about a lack of firepower and uh, Jesus is that he's not uh, not available for them at the moment. But that that finish from Eddie Nkita to the turn uh, to pick out the bottom corner that was fantastic. I mean that was the goal of the of the of the day for me. Um, 
they've still got a lot of talent in that side and I like the way Arteta's got them working as well. They've got the industry to go with that guy. Um, and that's why they've managed to stay the course. I mean, I think everybody was expecting them to fall away a little bit. I thought, and they would be overpowered by Man City and Haaland, the Haaland factor. But they're staying the course at the moment. And he's got them playing a brand of attacking football that um, we haven't really... We've seen the Arsenal play in fits and starts. They've played... Um, you know, nice attacking, pretty football in the past, but it's not been winning football on, on enough occasions. But this is winning football. They're pressing, like I said about Newcastle. They press well, they work hard, they hunt in packs, win the ball back, um, they hit you on the counter. Um, they've got players like Zaka that, um, not Granite Zaka, Vakatari um, Zaka, who can, uh, who can do something special. And um, that X factor is often what you re- is required to get you over the line. Well, Rob, I think we'd all agree that was a cracking uh, resumption to the Premier League. Just a broader picture one to close. How do you think that big gap in the middle of the season, uh, how are we going to look back on it in a couple of months? Is it going to have a tangible effect? Is it going to be something for managers to bemoan? Or is it going to be a case of the good sides like Arsenal or Newcastle will turn up and get the job done no matter how long they've had off? The sides with the bigger resources, the deeper pool of talent will be able to stay the course. A lot of clubs will find players burnt out. There'll be a lot of injuries over the next few months. I'm certain of it. I mean, it's been a crazy schedule anyway because of the pandemic and catching up, and then having a World Cup stuck in the in the middle of the season as well. You know, players travelling to Qatar, being away from their clubs. I mean, it's been a chance for the players that haven't gone to have a little break. But now the intensity of the program moving forward, the fixture lists moving forward, it's going to be very dem- demanding and challenging for, for for teams and clubs. Uh, I mean, I, I look at Leicester's squad and there isn't the strength in depth in there to cope with too many more injuries. I mean, they've already got Madison out now with a, a knee injury with no uh, estimate of when he's going to be back. Um, Johnny Evans is out, Jack Justin, Ricardo Pereira, Ryan Bertrand. You know, it's five five of your, of your squad there gone. Um, and they're dipping into the uh, into the under-23 to try and... Um, you know, crop up the squad. So, and there's players on the bench that Brendan wouldn't turn to in a month of Sundays because he does, he's got no faith in them and he wants to move them on. So, those sort of clubs like Leicester are going to find it tough moving forward. That's why it's so important to recruit in January. Well, Rob, as always, a, a proper pleasure to have you on. All the best to you and the family and, of course, the dogs included moving into the uh, new year. And you've said personally that your schedule, of course, ramps up as does the players. So, thank you for finding some time, as always. Thanks, guys. Rob Tanner of The Athletic there. Stick around on the other side of the break. Stoppage time returns to the main show. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. Great to chat to Rob Tanner of The Athletic there. Comprehensive as always. As mentioned, the chairs have been flipped a little bit this week. So we didn't want to rob you of our regular... Uh, stoppage time topic. So, Derek, as always, we've got game of the week, and you're going to kick us off in the Premier League. Yeah, that's right, Willem. Uh, we didn't mention this game with Rob, so uh, Brentford versus Spurs is my pick. Uh, obviously, as an Arsenal fan, could have been a little a little bit better from my point of view, but uh, credit where credit's due, uh, Spurs did did pull back extremely well in a, in a very entertaining. London derby, Harry, Harry Kane showing no ill effects of the World Cup, score a great header, and Pierre-Emil Hoiberg 
creating the uh, the, the creating the comeback. Uh, Conte after the game though very down and glib as usual. Uh, I think they just keep uh, conceding first in these games, and they always leave themselves a mountain to climb. If you're a Tottenham fan, you'd be very frustrated, but they're also very entertaining. So for me, game of the week: uh, Brentford two, Spurs two. Where are they at, Derek? They seem to be, Tottenham that is, they seem to be flying under the radar until this result and maybe they'll put it down to the fact that they've just come back from the break and that you might need a couple of weeks to to recapture your best form. But they seem to be in a, a really good spot. I mean, Arsenal are the unlikely leaders to this point. Newcastle are there as a threat, but they haven't proven over previous years that they can uh, sustain that. Uh, and Manchester City, uh, not their totally dominant self, otherwise they'd be top by this point. So Tottenham appear to be... Uh, in the box seat to an extent to maybe do something in the back half of the season. So then to roll out post-World Cup break and produce that must be bitterly disappointing uh, and quite brilliant from your opinion. Well, yeah, it won't be lost on them that Arsenal are top of the league and, and Spurs have had had the uh, this run over Arsenal in, in recent times. Uh, look, Conte sort of made a point before the game that he might just drop all of his World Cup stars, sort of making a point that you know, this game was coming quite early. I'm, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, given all, all, all teams had the same disadvantage at the start of this, start of this uh, next period. And he did end up playing all of his stars. Apart from, apart from Hugo Lloris, obviously, played the final um, for uh, for France. And, and to be fair, they missed him a bit because I didn't think Fraser Forster was much shakes as the, uh, as the replacement in goal. But look, you can look at the Tottenham dilemma in two ways. Yes, they keep uh, conceding all these early goals, and that doesn't look good, but they also keep coming back. And if you'd think that if they can just start games better, then the win should come, and that they do have the quality all over the pitch, including Son and Kane and Richarlison uh, when he's back in the team as well. He looked fantastic for Brazil, leading the line until their shock exit from the World Cup. Uh, Kulisevsky is another great, great uh, talent as well. So I'm... Yeah, you know, as a pure from a pure neutral point of view, yeah, look, Tottenham have got some some stuff to sort out, but I don't think it's overall a big worry. They they have the artillery; they just need to start games a bit better, Willem. Michael, your game of the week. My game of the week, Willem. Um, uh, if you let, let me do some self indulgence, was over here in Istanbul. I trekked out on Christmas Day, Christmas night, after a big lunch. I needed to uh, walk off some of the extra food I ate and uh, went out to. Uh, to Spool Stadium and saw Galatasaray uh, host Istanbul Spore, which you would have thought is a local derby, but Istanbul Spore um, hasn't been in the top flight very often. Um, they are uh, a small club from a, a suburb in Istanbul with only a capacity at their ground of 4,600 people. Uh, but they were out at Galatasaray, which was a full house, and um, Galatasaray won 2-1 in quite a competitive uh, game, but uh, just a fantastic experience to... Um, see the great uh, orange and red club go around with uh, amazing support in the stadium um, and uh, I enjoyed it very much so that was my game of the day and, and it was the player of the player of the of the match for me was um, uh, Butimbi Gonis who's uh, from France he got the first goal and set up the second one for Galatasaray to win and uh, yeah that was my game of the week experiencing football in Istanbul Turkey. I assume that wasn't the great Batimba Femagomis who's still at Al Halal in, in Saudi Arabia there. No. It, in fact, it is him. He's not at Al Halal in Saudi Arabia. He's, That's him. It's him. He's back at uh, Galatasaray. Oh. 
Uh, he's, he's a gun. He's a dominant player on his day. He's, uh, no, he's good. Charismatic. He's, yeah, for Timber Femi Gomez. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and very proud of the success that he's had at, uh, at Al Halal. Loved his, loved his time there. My game of the week, for all the wrong reasons, and we discussed it off the top, has to be Western United 1, Melbourne victory nil. played behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, a lot of people I know uh, just through word of mouth and, and people on the street and on Twitter have cancelled their Paramount Plus subscriptions. Victory fans who mark the uh, the Boxing Day fixture in their diary just as sort of prominently and enthusiastically as they do so with the uh, pre-Christmas derby. Uh, obviously not attending this one and a lot of people not watching it. And uh, if it wasn't for Joey Lynch writing his match report with the um, with the, the post-match commentary from Popovich and Aloisi and posting it on his sort of self-published site for free, uh, coverage is pretty scant, so that says a fair bit about where we're at at the uh, at the minute. So my game of the week for all the wrong reasons, uh, a, a dodgy red card there as well, Edge, and an offside which Popovich claimed wasn't there. So that probably says uh, all you need to know. Derek, back to England for your moment of the week. Yeah, well, moment of the week for me was the uh, last minute winner for uh, Wolves. Uh, we did mention it with Rob Tanner when we were talking about Everton and their troubles under Frank Lampard, but. Julian, Lop- Julian Lopetebi, we spoke about him in the lead-up to the World Cup. He'd taken this job, but Wolves had uh, pursued him for a long time, and he, did- he nearly didn't come to the club because of some uh, some ill health around his dad, but he has a fun- He has taken this job. Uh, they went into the break losing to Arsenal and, and didn't look in all that great form, but uh, a-, a goal from uh, uh, Rayan 8 Nouri, uh, the Algerian... Um, latching onto a ball there in the fourth minute of uh, stoppage time, that moment there for his first goal in the Premier League, and he got absolutely mobbed by his teammates, and rightly so, because Wolves have now moved off the bottom of the Premier League. And, uh, you know, for Jelen Lopetegui, you know, away at Everton could have been a, a tricky fixture, and it was, but they've walked away with all uh, three points, and, and I think we can probably expect. Uh, you know, with a class manager in charge, hopefully some more signings. I think they've already made a, already signed a striker in the window, or someone will be coming in the needed one. I don't think they can rely on geriatric Diego Costa snarling his way to goals up front. They didn't need something else up there, but I think we'll see Wolves moving in the right direction now, Willem. But that was my moment of the week. Michael, your moment. Moment of the week for me. I can't believe uh, Derek hasn't uh, stormed my thunder or stolen my thunder with this one. But Arsene Wenger returned to the Emirates for the first time since he was uh, dismissed in or he left in 2018. And um, he's obviously waited, Derek, until the team's been rebuilt at the top of, top of the league. So he got a, a wonderful reception from the home faithful. Um, I thought that was a nice moment on social media when he... Uh, acknowledge the uh, love of the fans, but um, also I did see the irony of um, Arsene returning to the Emirates when Arsenal were top of the league. Considering the state of the squad, he left. Uh, he left when he left. Um, I did see a bit of irony in that, Derek. Yeah, look, I, I had I had a few goosebumps. I, I must admit, uh, seeing him on the big on the big screen there, and um, look, he's very carefully decided to stay away from from Arsenal. Uh, I think the invite has always been open as someone that, you know, has been so integral in the recent history of the club. But obviously he's been focused on his his job at FIFA. But I think he also, firstly, I, I think it was a bit of self-preservation on his side because he's so invested in the club over such a long period of time that I genuinely think it would have been quite painful for him just to 
go up and sit up in a corporate box and um, just take in the game as a fan. But I also think in the way that you you know you always see at Old Trafford the camera cutting to Sir Alex Ferguson. I think you've got the same problem with Wenger at times as well. He he casts a long shadow, not just because he's a tall man and he he is a tall man, but you know over any manager. But as, as you said, with with uh, Mikel Arteta finding his feet. Um, putting this side together, putting this fantastic run together. What perfect timing for, for Wenger. He is still living in London, so it wouldn't have been a, a commute, a, too bad a commute for him to come down for the game. And then once Arsenal kind of got up and running and winning the game, hearing there's only one Arsene Wenger ringing out around the ground. I've sung that song many times at the Emirates and at Highbury. Uh, it, it was great. It was absolutely fantastic to see. Finally, my moment comes from the Carabao Cup, a little bit off-Broadway, but little old Charlton of League One uh, have made their way through to the quarterfinals. They've progressed through their last eight matches via penalties. Their most recent one came against Brighton, and there's a Socceroosa Matilda's twist here, Michael. Ashley Maynard Brewer, a name who, to many Aussie football fans, has not been much more than just a... uh, then a name on those Aussies abroad raps that we see pop up uh, overnight. But he made a penalty save. He was apparently very, very solid throughout. Uh, he's from the very famous ECU Joondalup in WA. Uh, been at Charlton since 2015 and at 23 years of age, starting to get some senior opportunity. So he might just be ready to explode. Finally, Derek, bring us home with your Hot Topic of the Week. Yeah, we're moving away from, from the Premier League. I just want to talk about and I'm probably going to butcher the name here, the, uh, the the Polish referee that took charge of the World Cup final, uh, Simon Marciniak. Um, and he faced a lot of criticism from the French media saying that Messi's extra time goal should have been chalked off because it appeared that two Argentina substitutes appeared to enter the pitch um, where, uh, before the ball hit the net. So there was this infringement. And... Uh, Lakipu, we mentioned uh, earlier in the show, of taking exception to this. I think there's a, um, a petition with 200,000 signatures on it saying that the World Cup final uh, should be uh, replayed. So he was in a uh, in a press conference being asked about this, and he pulled out his his camera phone and he showed a picture um, showing that French, seven France substitutes had entered the field while celebrating one of Mbappe's goals and pointing out, well, Lakipu haven't done a uh, a petition about this, have they? So I think probably the bigger point, um, Edge, is that I actually quite liked this. I like the fact that the referee, even though it wasn't really, you know, choreographed that way, was able to come out in some kind of forum and explain decisions that they've made. And I actually felt the thing that's actually really good for the game. I'd like to see more of it. Oh, I've got to say, did he, uh, the Polish referee had his hands full from the word go of that game. It was um, an epic emotional roller coaster. There was stuff happening all over the place. Um, yeah, I thought the referee did a fabulous job keeping it all together and uh, steering it through. And um, and good on him from for pointing out some hypocrisy from a, a newspaper. Uh, wouldn't uh, I'm sure there's been plenty of referees uh, through the ages who would have liked to have done that um, at different times throughout their careers. So good on him for doing it. But um, look, I. Um, I think the referees have a very tough job, um, in particular in a in a emotion charged event that you know the entire world is uh, hanging on the result of. Um, yeah, I thought he was fantastic. Don't know about you, Willem, but I thought he was, I thought he was uh, I thought he added to the spectacle of the game. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I think it was reflected in commentary from uh, multiple commentary boxes uh, and broadcasts around the world. That no, I think the um, 
the sentiment was that he did a very, very good job. Michael, quickly, your your hot topic? Yeah, my hot topic, I'm going to go back to the Premier League and say, what about Christmas Day fixtures? Because in 1889, Preston played Aston Villa, which was the equivalent of Manchester City and um, Arsenal. Arsenal. They're playing on Christmas Day. (laughs) So um, I would have, uh, you know, I just um, raised the, uh, you know, in the world of uh, football, in the Premier League and the A-League, our world in particular, um, would Christmas Day fixtures be add, add to the uh, the league's success? I think it would. You've only got to look at what happens in uh, the United States with three NFL and NBA games um, scheduled in time zones. Uh, uh, if you live in the Midwest and you're a football person in, uh, in America, you structure your Christmas Day celebrations around... Uh, um, working off the Christmas lunch in front of the TV, watching an NFL game. So I, um, I actually am in favour of Christmas Day fixtures, and I think the A League has an opportunity to steal the march. If the, if Danny Townsend wants to be remembered for innovation and uh, taking the league to new areas, he might have considered that before he sold grand finals, Willem. Jeez, Michael, you have been uh, away for a little while because the NBL, the National Basketball League here in Australia, has stolen the march. They had their first Christmas Day fixture, what was it, a couple of days on from uh, here as we record. They had 7,000 there, which is all you need to be a, a booming uh, NBL fixture. So they have, uh, as they did with Tasmania, I thought that the uh, the A-League should have put a team in Tasmania a long time ago. The NBL did it and it's been a success. So the NBL's caught the, uh, the A-League on the hop, not for the first time there. To close, my hot topic is the investigation into... Uh, how Turkish chef Salt Bay got his grubby, salty mitts on the World Cup final trophy. Derek Nuzrat Goce is his name. Uh, he wormed his way into every video, Insta, TikTok uh, possible going around post-World Cup. The Argentine players, particularly Lisandro Martinez, looking a little bit unsure, a bit bereft, not too happy. Uh, FIFA have launched an investigation. Uh, the trophy is only supposed to be touched by certain people dignitaries, tournament winners, and FIFA officials. Uh, clearly someone ticked him off, gave him the green light, uh, and now wants to wind that decision back. And out emerges a video with none other than Gianni Infantino visiting one of Mr. Bay's restaurants in Dubai in January 2021, saying, Mr. Nuzrat, number one, the best of the best, unforgettable evening in Dubai, before calling him a legend. Mm, Gianni might have salt on his hands here, Derek. Plenty for us to get salty about with uh, Salt Bay there. No... He is kind of known as a kind of friend of the football stars, but a lot of them go for winter training, pre-season training in Dubai and are often invited to, uh, around to his restaurant, which is apparently fantastic. But yeah, um, had to had to say that he probably wasn't the person I expected to be popping up. To be honest, I didn't expect to see Sergio Aguero uh, popping up either, a cigar in mouth as well. I wasn't aware he was part of the... Uh, the Argentina uh, squad, but he somehow managed to get himself into the locker rooms a bit, a bit like uh, John Terry with full kit on. Uh, I think Terry made a kind of dig saying that he at least went for the full kit, including the shin guards and the boots, whereas uh, Sergio Aguero didn't quite have all the garb on. But yeah, I think probably we need to uh, more tightly control who's getting onto the pitch here. This makes a mockery of it, doesn't it? I absolutely love the fact that Aguero was out there. Had things have gone differently, he would have... Uh, you know, quite possibly have squeezed this one out just like Messi and Di Maria have done. He's known those guys and I think he's related to Messi in, in some way through family uh, marriages and the like. And I think he saw this as uh, maybe not his success, but certainly saw himself as part of the inner sanctum. And I like seeing him out there. Uh, I thought that was quite sentimental. But as for the Salt Bay, uh, yeah, I wasn't 
Uh, I actually thought, oh, he's Argentinian. He must know them. But I was talking to another mate or a mate of mine. And he said, no, he's Turkish. He, he really had no place there. Uh, so there you go. Stick around. On the other side of this, we're going to have our final, final World Cup corner. Chemist the Chemist Warehouse Boxing Day vitamin sale is on now. All big brand vitamins are half price. Edge, how much? That'll be half price, Will. There's Swiss, Synovus, Biogland, Nature's Way, Blackmore's, Lifespace, Nature's Own, Go Healthy, and more. All how much, Derek? Half price. That would be half price. The sale does unfortunately exclude bulk sizes, but you can stock up in-store or online on all your favourites. Chemist Warehouse over there in Turkey, Michael? I haven't found any Chemist Warehouse in Turkey, but uh, my Chemist Warehouse stash of goods is running low, so as soon as I'm back in Australia, I'll be down there to to stock up. And they kept me going during those uh, nights of no sleep in Doha as we worked around the clock, Willem. They kept me going, the vitamins and all sorts of different uh, goodies from Chemist Warehouse. Well, even over there on the main streets of Istanbul, I can guarantee you that the great savings are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. Over previous weeks, Rob has put a close on the chapter of the Guitar World Cup corner and has promised that we're going to move uh, our attention into 2023. But while we are still in the final week of 2022, and we do have Mr. Michael Edgley with us, who was as immersed in the uh, Qatar World Cup, both personally and professionally, as any of us here, it would be remiss not to ask you, Michael, about your closing uh, thoughts now that you've left uh, Qatar, that you've had a little bit of space and breathing time, you've been able to, to wind down and look back on the, uh, the tournament that was. Absolutely, Willem. Um, I, I guess the first point to make is that uh, we will record a an extended sort of version of this with uh, Richard Rashid Hussein, where we want to get a insight from an Arabic Muslim perspective on the impact of the World Cup in uh, a part of the world that has about 400 million people live, the um, Arabic-speaking Muslim part of the world, um, which we'll talk about sort of all some of the political issues and some of the impacts of Morocco, for example, and uh, just what that meant to uh, the Arab uh, part of the world. But uh, my um, my closing reflections on the event is that it was uh, on the field uh, one of the most spectacular FIFA World Cups of all time. I think the Qataris looked after uh, the players and football stakeholders very, very well. The stadiums, training venues, hotels, uh, food, security, uh, the, the works. Uh, they, they did a very, very good job. Um, in terms of um, the fans, I think that is a... Uh, it's definitely not the best World Cup that uh, fans have experienced. I think the football entertained them thoroughly, but um, Qatar as a destination really did um, struggle to manage the demand of the world's football fan community coming to that event. And, and I um, do have a reflection that I felt the Western countries, the Western liberal democracy countries out of Europe um, in particular, didn't attend this event in the numbers that they would normally attend. Um, but this, had, but But I think that was replaced by the fans from Asia uh, incorporating the Middle East and Africa and also South America who were there in numbers that they would normally be at other World Cup events. Um, So I have mixed feelings about uh, this event. Uh, I do believe it was a plain success, a success for football um, in terms of the commercial numbers it's generated, no doubt. Um, And it did in many ways bring the Arabic world closer 
to uh, the Western world, uh, which I think is a significant outcome. And the first event in uh, an Arabic nation or the Middle East is also a very significant outcome of this event. However, it, it, you know, there were a few missed opportunities, weren't there, Willem? Um, uh, it might have been a more impactful event had of the, the Persian Gulf region uh, been included to share the World Cup games. I think that would have been a better tourism experience for visit visitors if there had been games in places like um, Abu Dhabi and uh, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, uh, Muscat in Oman, maybe even Riyadh or Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, Kuwaiti City in Kuwait, and uh, maybe even Manama in Bahrain. I think um, had if there been games in those cities um, through the group phase, I think there would have been a much greater impact of this event. Um, and off the field, I think there's been some progress on some of the social issues that were covered significantly and conflated with this football event uh, fairly on or unfairly depending on uh, which side of the fence you sit so um, this world cup will be remembered and uh, how could we not forget the uh, performance of Lionel Messi or Kylian Mbappe who um, scored four goals and was on the losing side of uh, that uh, final I mean who would have thought for me um the, obviously, the strain performance was electric, uh, getting through to the round of 16. And that last 15 minutes against Argentina when we had them uh, on the ropes was something that I'll never forget. Uh, just a shame we couldn't stick one in to make it 2-2 and go to extra time. Uh, but for me, the, the, the moment, my moment of the World Cup was experience in Morocco's quarterfinal victory over Portugal and uh, an African nation through to the semifinals of the World Cup for the first time. And uh, wonderful scenes, including... Um, the Moroccan boy uh, dancing with his mother. Uh, I will remember those uh, images and just the impact on the Moroccan fans that were uh, in the stadium that night will will uh, will last uh, my, will be memory of a lifetime for me. So um, I've only got um, positive thoughts of Qatar, but also a few um, uh, mixed emotions about some opportunities that were that were missed that might have made it uh, the event better. But uh, congratulations to the Qatari authorities. Congratulations to Argentina, who looked. You know, we, we forget that Argentina were beaten by Saudi Arabia in their first match of the World Cup and uh, they bounced back from that and uh, and got on a roll and went went through the whole way. And um, and France, I'm sure uh, people uh, closely involved with the French campaign will be thinking about uh, a missed opportunity. And congratulations to you as well, Edge. We know you were working hard out there and, um, you know, in the, lead, in, the, in the lead up to the tournament and making sure that the fans and the players and their their families and friends and entourages were all, were all looked after. What's the um, come down been like? I mean, obviously, you you know, this is a story that started well before the, you got to Qatar, obviously, with the, you know, will they, won't they, uh, Australian qualification dilemma. Thank God they did. But um, what is the come down been like? Has it been difficult to kind of almost drag yourself away from the tournament and uh is you know is there still stuff that needs to be done from your side as you finish it off from a green and gold army point of view yeah there's a few things to wrap up in terms of uh, service providers um in terms of uh, final invoices and things like that uh, which we're working through but uh, look uh, it's a good question um, at the end of the event you're just totally exhausted uh, i mean willem will attest we just throw everything into it everybody involved in our organization it's uh uh, it is hard to explain the amount of energy that's required to pull it off. Um, and it, there's some unique challenges in Qatar around availability of inventory and standards of uh, transport and accommodation and tourism activities in particular. But um, yeah, look, the, the, the come down is, uh, it's pretty brutal because you normally, uh, personally and myself and some of my staff, you, you, are, you do need two weeks to really just uh, 
sleep and um, do not do not a lot before you sort of regroup again. And uh, I had the opportunity, obviously, to um, get away, being in that part of the world uh, with my two, my twenty-two and nineteen-year-old daughters, go over to Jordan and have um, five or six days there uh, and have a look around and relax, and then. Uh, Christmas here in Turkey. So I've had an opportunity to recharge the batteries. I'm looking forward to 2023. But yeah, it was a big project in 2022. And um, I'm um, very proud of what we achieved and uh, how we uh, pulled off uh, the event for the various stakeholder groups we look after and um, looking forward to 2023 now and um, the Women's World Cup and then beyond to January of 2024 when we'll be back in Qatar for the Asian <laughs> Cup, believe it or not. Yes, back for the Asian Cup. Well, well done. Congratulations to you and your Greenegold Army team, Michael. Uh, and thank you for your, uh, your input on this show. Great to have you back a little bit more regularly. And we'll see you once again next week. You certainly will. And we will bring uh, World Cup Corner into the future next week as we do start to look to the 2023 Women's World Cup. Derek, thank you very much. Have a fantastic week. Thanks, Jen. See you soon. Thank you, of course, to Rob Tanner, as always, and to you, our listener. Please subscribe to box to box box to box Stoppage Time and box to box Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us anytime at box to box nts and follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. Join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop, and we're going to have a chat to Richard Rashid Hussain, as Edge just flagged there. Uh, and as always, we will go from one end to the pitch this time next week in the World Game. Catch you next time.